I'm fascinated by circumstances. You know the factors or conditions that play a part in determining our decisions in life, the paths that we follow. I looked it up and the word came in our vocabulary in the early 13th century, meaning conditions surrounding or accompanying an event. And they can arrive in so many ways. They're big or little, planned or unplanned, sometimes abrupt, and other times circumstances are just the passage of life. But sometimes a single circumstance can change the course of your life and the life of generations to come. And a recurring theme in this show is refugees and immigrants who come to Canada to create a new home. Some of their travels are planned, while others, it's a place to escape. And in both cases, they leave so much behind. Their family, their friends, their culture, their language, their nuances, all they know. They might not all bring material possessions, but they bring their dreams, their desires, and an appreciation for all Canada offers. And their journey's not easy, and they might have to trade an operating table or teaching at a university or running a plant for driving an Uber, but they do it because they need to survive and they want to set up their children for future success. And it's wide, and Varshik Pospisil of Canada has knocked out the number two seed and he's overjoyed. My guest today is here because of circumstances. In 1988, two years before he was born, his parents and his older brothers unlawfully drove from Czechoslovakia to Austria to escape the communist regime. How they ended up in Canada, we'll soon learn. But here they produced another son, Vasek Pospisil. He is their world champion, and he is ours. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And Vashik helped Canada accomplish something no other country has ever done. In the same year, in 2022, Canada won both the Davis Cup and the ATP Cup. Canada are the 2022 Davis Cup World Champions. Play for your country and, and also your teammates. So every match when you you know you're on the court, just, there's so much more on the line. It, just, it feels so much more important. Vashik Pasipal is an amazing young man, and I'm going to break my chat into four areas. First, the prodigal son. His family sacrificed everything to escape and move to Canada. That that put more pressure on him to be the best. Second, his tennis career. How did he persevere through a severe back injury to return to play world champion tennis at age 31? The social activist, collaborating with one of the world's top male tennis players, Djokovic, to create a players union. And finally, an astute investor who understands that age or other circumstances will one day take him off the court and he has to set up his next move. Vashik, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the show. Now, we're going to get into your incredible tennis career in a moment, but I want you to talk a little bit about your parents. How much did they share of that journey that night when they kind of escaped, as you call unlawfully escaped to Austria? It's really crazy that I, I've only ever heard all the details of that story very recently, which is, you know, my shows just how I guess reserved my, my, my parents are by nature and I've always kind of had a very you know surface level understanding of what happened when I would ask questions it would always kind of be the answer that I got and then yeah I think one day it was like about a year ago or so or very recently they, they just opened up about the whole journey and it was it just blew my mind I just I could not believe everything that happened and um, but essentially yeah they, they just uh, escaped um, the communist regime didn't tell their family at all nobody didn't bring anything just packed a few things in the car Raced through, I guess, sped, sped through the border and they were in Austria for a year, worked there under the table. My dad was just saving up enough money to get some plane tickets to go to Canada. Um, 
where my uncle, his brother, uh, had escaped the year prior and, and was in a small town, Vernon, which was um, the reason for, for us ultimately settling down there or my parents settling down there and then me being born um, a year later. Born in Canada and you've got older brothers and I understand that your first uh, taste of tennis was really just being a ball boy for them. My earliest memory is uh, is a tennis ball, chasing it around in, in the living room and on the court. My brothers were were being fed balls by my dad who was, who was co- coaching them and, and I was just running around and then trying to, wanting to play and then my dad finally, I guess, I wouldn't say finally let me play but I guess he finally started coaching me and when I was five years old which I guess is probably the earliest age that makes sense to start getting lessons and developing some tennis skills. So, you know, in Hollywood often glamorizes the protege. We've saw Tiger Woods and Johnny Carson taking a golf swing at age five and I mean, did your dad see something in you that early or was it just hey the younger kid deserves a chance to hit a few balls as well i mean at least from everything that i hear <laughs> is that uh he always saw something in me you know very early and and which got him excited and i mean i was i was lucky i mean that's you know it was a perfect perfect intro in terms of just you know my brothers are seven and eight years older than me so by the time i was even old enough to play or start playing they were already you know at a good level a good junior level um and then also my dad was uh, a huge tennis fan when he came to Canada. He didn't have a tennis background. I mean, he was a recreational player, just hit the ball around a little bit every now and then in Czech Republic and just became a huge, passionate tennis freak, I guess, when he came to Canada and he wanted his sons to be professional tennis players and uh, started reading books on how to coach and, and watching videos and just studying the game. And so, um, you know, when I came around, he was also more experienced as a coach because he was coaching my brothers for several years and he was so passionate and cared so much about his family and, and also had the ability to play with my brothers that were obviously at a much higher level than I was. Did you watch the movie King Richard? I did. And was there any parallels to your dad in that? Yeah, like honestly, uh, unbelievable parallels. <laughs> <laughs> you know, same but different. You know, obviously, you know, it's, but I actually, I actually got a little emotional watching that movie because there were so many, you know, especially with just how driven Richard was and, 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 and obviously knowing how driven my dad was as well and, and uh, all those, you know, public court late night sessions and and trying to make the most out of everything old tennis balls going quietly just like yeah it it was it was a really cool movie to watch for me you know i read the book i think it was the open by andre agassi a great one of the great sports biographies but he showed a lot of bitterness to his dad for forcing him to play tennis and he talks about you know the 100 degree heat in vegas and asphalt courts and stuff but I don't sense that with you, and I certainly didn't sense it with the Williams sisters. I mean, this is something you seem to be very appreciative of the of the investment he made. I also read that book, and if I had a, a critique, it would have been what what was said about his father. Because I mean, listen, ultimately his father loved him, and, and I don't think he denied that. And and he's an you know an eight time or, or nine time Grand Slam champion, and, and he's given him the life that he has today, which is incredible, right? And which is the way I look at it, of course. And I've had tough times also, like growing up and with the sport and, and I in many ways felt like you know my dad was also well he was the drive the driving force but I mean I loved it don't get me wrong I loved playing tennis and but it was tough I mean it was a job probably way too early or uh well again even that I can't say that because that could have been the reason why I became you know successful in the sport from a from a small hockey town so I mean but it definitely was a job very early on I mean that's how I looked at it so in one of the interviews though you said one of your regrets possibly is that it did consume you you're homeschooled you love soccer but you really had to pick that lane early is that something you would do to your children that kind of push them into a lane that early because it does become somewhat 
one dimensional. If I had said that in the past, I would I would like to correct it for sure because I definitely don't have regrets because everything that you go through through your life and the journey that you kind of go on it shapes you into the the person that you are and and I feel like as long as you're you're always making the the best decisions you can with with what you know the information that you have in front of you and you're following your passion and there's no regrets and and I I don't think I'd be where I am today and I'm very happy for where I am today if it wasn't for that crazy commitment and all those sacrifices and and I feel like I, you know it's also helped me mature and from that aspect you know I don't have regrets and then in, in terms of would I do something similar with my children um, that's a really tough question actually and I've thought about that a lot and I guess I have a little bit of time because I I don't have children yet, but uh, <laughs> it is something that I would, to some degree, like to in- instill in them as well. At least, you know, and tennis is a great sport because it, it, you, it teaches you to be independent at a very young age. You have to problem solve. Um, you have to mature pretty quickly, which I think is, is great for life in general. And then whether they would want to pursue it professionally or, or go to school or, or you know, I, I think they'll have a great platform for, for whatever they do in life afterwards. So if you look back at your junior career, when did you know that you had arrived and that your name could appear in the world rankings? I would say, well, first, when I was very, very young, when I was nine years old, I won the U.S. Nationals, um, which was as a Canadian, which is no longer allowed. I don't think Canadians can play in the U.S. Nationals anymore. Maybe I was the reason for that, but <laughs> that was short-lived. And they're like, oh my gosh, a Canadian just won. Okay, we can't do this anymore. That was the first time where things you know, became really serious uh, in terms of like, oh wow, okay, maybe I can become a pro. I think later on in my junior career, probably when I played the U.S. Open, juniors for the first time um, I actually made finals of doubles with Grigor Dimitrov actually we're, we're good friends and that would have been the first time I think. Hi it's Tony Chapman we come back Vasek turns pro he has early success in an Olympic appearance but an injury almost cost him his career Pospisil is an exciting young player. He's got a lot of firepower, huge forehand, big serve. He's an athletic player. He's one of this, the sort of the new prototype on the ATP World Tour. I love the way he moves on the court. The guy is so light and so fast. I think he's going to be a very, very good player. When I see the way he moves, the way he plays, the way he creates, I see a top player. Pospisil is one of the great young talents in our game. Big serve, big forehand. Now I know those are sort of sort of the benchmarks of the modern game, but I think he has a little bit more going as well. He has a wonderful charm on court. He can play from different parts of the court. And I think when he gets it going, he's as good as any young player out there. My guest today is Vashik Pospisil. He's a member of the world champion Davis Cup team. He is not only an incredible tennis player, but just an absolutely wonderful human being. From my understanding, you turned pro in 2007. How did you cope? Because from what I understand in talking to other athletes, it's several rungs on the ladder, even though it just looks like the next step in your career. When you get into that world, it's a very different situation. Very different. I mean, I, I turned pro and turning pro really all that all that really meant at the time that I did was okay, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to school. It wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm turning pro. So from now, this is, there's amazing success and, and money and, and experiences and all that. It was, it was just like, no, like this just means that we're deciding to go through this grind. And it was a grind for a couple of years, for sure. I mean, I, I was traveling with my dad, obviously nonstop, playing all these random small tournaments all over the world, basically, wherever, wherever it was cheapest to go to. And I didn't have 
crazy success um, early on on the, on the on the pro tour. It took me about a year um, to have any kind of results, really. And then around 19, I, I broke through to like 300 in the world. And then I was there for about a year, hovering a bit. And then I actually started going really going up the rankings closer to top 100 when I was um, 20. And actually at that stage started working with Frederick Niemeyer, who is a coach for Tennis Canada. And that was also a, um, a great change and at the right time. So advice for our listeners, because as you said, the first couple of years was tough. You didn't have the successes, a lot of slugging. You didn't quit. And a lot of other people might have. So what's your advice for people that are when they're caught in what they think they're running in cement to just keep moving forward? It was really hard to keep going forward. But at the same time, it was really easy. And I know it's just a, it's a weird comment to make, but but it was because it was always my dream my passion so and it wasn't like I had felt this you know and I was also fortunate because I never had the feeling that I had this crazy like pressure from from my parents or my dad never because even though they'd sacrificed so much right they that never rubbed off on me even though as I got older I began to understand all the sacrifices they made and it would start to to weigh on me a little bit more for sure but um so I mean my advice would just be you know if if it's something that you're really passionate in and something you want to do things take longer than you anticipate but it's like if you're fully dedicated to that cause or that project or that whatever it is that you're doing, your passion, you know, I really believe that that perseverance, you know, just ultimately gets you there because there are only so many people that are willing to do that, which also happens to be in a field that they're passionate about, right? So I just believe in, I guess, in some ways, the law of attraction, right? Just like just going for it, believing you can do it and, and, and it'll happen. The next headwinds to hit you is injuries 2013 doesn't start off well you get mono but by the middle of the summer you're playing against some of the best Federer Djokovic I mean that must be a year to remember in your life because at the beginning of the year it's probably I couldn't drag myself out of bed and by the end of the year you're you're playing with the best. Yeah, I just started working with with a new coach, Frederick Fontang, that the federation had found for me as an option. So, so I, I started working with him, who was a very experienced French coach. Um, right when we started working, I got mono. It was the, it was actually it was the end of 2012, going into 2013. Um, I lost 10 pounds uh, or, or more, which ironically was one of the things my coach wanted me to do was to lose weight. So, so he's like, you know, just to get on a better diet, eat better, and. And he, you know, he really, he was an amazing coach for me that really became a mentor as well for the four years we were together and, and just showed me all these things I didn't know about what it meant to be a professional player. It was just like, oh, like you need to spend all this time on physiotherapy and, and, and fitness. And, and again, it's just like, you don't really know when you're young until you're, until you're taught it or you go through it or you figure it out on your own. And obviously if you're going to figure it out on your own, it's going to take a lot longer. So it's better to have someone there with experience. And Frederick Fontaine was, was that guy for me. So I think as we started, it was a combination of all those things just combined into one in it, which is why I just shot through the rankings and one of those and obviously most importantly was you know the changes that he made in, in my in my game to be more aggressive to make the changes that he saw that I needed to make that I agreed with that would get me to the higher ranks and you know and it took when I got back from mono it took six months to get from I think it was 130 to 32 in the world so it was a pretty incredible transition and very significant moment in my career and it wasn't just your singles game I think you 
teamed up with Jack Sox, I think, right? And and that, you guys became, like, you were ranked fifth in the world, and you won Wimbledon, and this is just, you know, this is the kind of script that Hollywood writes, and it must have been just amazing for you to go through all of this. It was unbelievable. So much happened in a year, you know, like all these dreams coming true, and, and also just psychologically, I, I just shifted so much from just, like, getting, suddenly just being like, you know what, I'm, like, had all this confidence and really felt like I be- belonged, and if I'd re- rewinded one year, it was just like I was, like, a different, it was like a kid. It's like I became a man, you know, in like a, in the span of a year. And, and um, it was, yeah, it was incredible. And winning Wimbledon and just so many amazing memories that year. When we're in life, there's times where we hit rough patches. You know, I was in sales when I ran my agency. And there's times where I could do no right or other times where I could do no wrong. How does an athlete come to terms with it? Because you step on the court at a specific moment, at a specific time of the day, and you're expected to perform. So when your confidence is running... I mean, you must just almost skip onto that court, but when it's not, it must be a very different, take a very different fortitude just to even compete. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, if you're, if you're low on confidence, you know, you're, you're, you're just thinking too much. <laughs> There's too much going on in your mind. And, and if you're thinking too much, then you're, you're slower. You're not as quick to react. You're, you're, you have brain fog. Um, and you're just more, I mean, you're just more tense if you're not confident. Right. So, and I think for sure that goes with every, with, in every, aspect of life and you know the best way to to prepare for that or the best way to kind of avoid those crazy swings is is preparation and and work and time spent on the court so that when you go on the court you're like you know what i did everything possible to to get ready for this whether it's uh, an interview for a job opportunity or whether it's a tennis match and then you just like okay well now i just you know what happens happens all i can control is to give do my best and and I've, i've prepared the best i can and and then, you know, you kind of take comfort in that. So I think that's something you also get better with as you get older. Those roller coaster swings become a lot smaller um, as you become more experienced. So at the end of this amazing run, you end up in the quarterfinals playing singles against Andy Murray. So just to set the stage, Wimbledon is the epicenter of tennis. It doesn't get anything bigger or better. Andy Murray is obviously a crowd favorite. You're in the quarterfinals. How did that feel? It was crazy. I mean, I have I have a few I have a few maybe like a handful of like very significant moments in my career that I'll never forget. And and obviously walking on to to Wimbledon for the doubles final is one of them. And then the following year walking on on center court play Andy Murray in the in the quarterfinals of singles is is another. And I would have liked to have been a little bit more fresh, I guess, because I was also playing doubles. And and which now in hindsight it was maybe a bad idea to keep playing so I was playing so many matches and sets and uh, I was coming back from two sets to love and two sets to one I played I don't know three five setters and singles and yeah I mean it was it was still um, a great week and great career memory and, and beating Andy or to play Andy and then let alone you know to, to try and beat him in front of his home crowd Wimbledon is a, is a really tough task especially at that time I have to believe that you weren't as good looking as you are and as charming as you are you weren't the crowd favorite that day <laughs> well thank you but uh, yeah no I definitely was not the crowd favorite but at least I didn't get booed or anything I don't think I understand after these two Wimbledon experiences you bought your your parents a house I did it was actually it was even earlier than that it was after my very first breakthrough year 2013 so it was I had had that six month break breakthrough and a very large chunk of what I, what I had earned the majority of it um, you know to kind of get my parents their their dream home and which you know meant meant a lot to me obviously and, and you know to them as well but but to be able to do that after after everything was was amazing and, and a bit I'm a bit of a, a monkey uh, weight off my shoulder right so Hi, it's Tony Chapman. We come back. Vashek Pospisil talks about an injury that 
sidelines his career, but opens his mind to possibilities. Hi, it's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. The world's upside down and having peace of mind seems to be the exception versus the rule. RBC Wealth Management is hoping to change that. They don't have a crystal ball, but they do have a team of experts dedicated to working with you to preserve and grow your wealth and help you manage risks so that you can enjoy the rewards of your labor. Your peace of mind and financial health matters to RBC. The thing is, when you have surgery for the first time, it was my first surgery, and obviously it was lower back surgery, so it wasn't, you know, walk in the park. I wasn't quite sure if I was going to reach the high level again. I wasn't sure how my body was going to respond. I never had surgery, so there were tons of question marks. Will I ever be able to play or move well? Vashik Pospisil is enjoying a remarkable return to form. The Canadian is back inside the top 100, went all the way to the singles final in Montpellier, and won the doubles in Marseille with Nicolas Mahou. Vashik is back. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Vashik Pospisil. He is a world champion tennis player, an astute investor, and a defender of the underdog. And so I want to fast track to 2019. You know, you're firing on all cylinders, but you get the news that you need to have back surgery. You know what? It, it just kind of came out of nowhere. I was playing, I was starting to play really, really well again. I had, you know, in 2016, I had a, a, a drop in the rankings, um, you know, went through a really interesting time. Actually, I, I had started working with a with a Buddhist um, sports psychologist uh, quite intensely for, for over a year. And I just kind of completely yeah i guess just kind of went the wrong direction and i spent so much time you know meditating which is which is generally a great thing obviously and um but really just kind of lost my motivation and i started contemplating i was like going through like an existential crisis i was like why am i putting so much attention on being a tennis player and i was ranked really high i was i was ranked 40 in the world i believe at the time and and I just didn't want to practice anymore. I was like, why? I was just felt like I was unhappy. Why am I even um, doing this? If I want, you know, if I have friends and family, if that makes me happy and whatever. And I was just in this whole crazy looking at myself from a bird's uh, eye view flying over me, the three all in a tiebreak against Seppi, like laughing at the situation and thinking, you know, why, why am I even stressed about this? this is ridiculous. And so that was, that was kind of the, the beginning of a, of a, of a brief, pretty major drop in the rankings relative to where I was for three years and which was an amazing experience. I mean, by the way, I, I take that as one of the best things that happened in my life because I'd learned so much about myself and I feel like my, the wirings in my brain just kind of, they were just rewired after that. So I, I really cherished the, that, that, that year, which at the time was, looked like a very negative experience, but but really amazing. And then similar thing that happened with my back surgery. I mean, I kind of all was good after and I was going, uh, shooting, kind of going back up the rankings, started to play really well and then had a back injury that, you know, ultimately I had to have surgery on, um, was out for eight months. I was the first surgery I had first major surgery. So I wasn't sure if I would ever play at the high level again, but I was trying to be optimistic and same thing. I really believe that the surgery was, was one of the better things that happened in my, in my tennis career because it had actually allowed me to get into business, to explore other things that I was good at and other interests, which I never had time for. And in theory, I was always like, well, whatever I do in my life after tennis, I'll be, 
great ad. And, but that was the first time I got to actually experience it. And, and I, the view of myself and self-worth and, and I, my identity, you know, was no longer just Vashik, the tennis player, but I, but I had so much more going for me, which again, then helped me when I came back on the court and, and I, you know, was just a, a more well-rounded person and, and player. So you've got your competitors that are kind of zoning in like your coach told you, you know, you get physiotherapy and exercise and just be consumed by tennis. You, on the other hand, are opening up new lanes. I mean, Buddhism and then understanding there's more to life besides tennis. That turned to your advantage on the court versus someone that just focused on solely on the court. Why do you think that is? In this case, it, it really helped because uh, I'll take the, the, the example of coming back from the back surgery when I started um, a functional mushroom company. And I also started the what became the, the, the first tennis player association and with Novak Djokovic and, and then got you know involved in some investments and so when I came back on the tennis court it, it just I felt like when I was playing my matches that it wasn't life or death kind of what it felt like before I mean it felt like you know you're you're if you win you're just like on top of the moon and and if you lose it's like you feel like you're in the gutter and you just like someone just punched you in the face and it's kind of like that your whole you know in a lot of ways your whole career and I feel like that's why where the more balance you can have as an individual to be like, you know, hey, I'm also all these other things and I have all these other things going on for me, then that moment when you're on the court and it's match point or break point or whatever it is, the situation, it becomes less significant in a, in a good way. I mean, where you have that detachment, right, that psychological detachment where you can actually be relatively relaxed enough to perform and execute. I think that's kind of where it really helped me because I came back from the surgery and, and my first year back, I, I played incredibly well. I mean, I was 28 in the race, but because of the COVID ranking system that came into place, I ended up being 61 on paper. But in reality, in, in terms of 12-month performance, I was 28 in the world. And that was my first year after an eight-month uh, layoff in surgery. So um, I think that speaks for what it had done to me mentally. Are you amazed when you look at Tiger Woods, because you both have had back surgeries, that either one of you can continue to compete? Because I look at when you get to the very best in the world, I mean, it's a fraction, it's a nanosecond, it's one switch versus another. And I'm, I'm always amazed that people can come back, in your case, even stronger. I mean, you win the 2020 ATP Comeback Player of the Year. First of all, I, I definitely won't compare myself to Tiger Woods, but... <laughs> but, but uh, but I will say that, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Um, and I think it goes back to, to, you know, my initial words on perseverance. And, and I think, you know, someone that even gets to, let's say, where Tiger got to in his career, is, you know, is a special kind of person. I mean, that, that has certain traits that excel and one of them being, I'm sure, perseverance and hard work. So then to that same degree, it, it's not a huge surprise that, that, you know, someone like that, that will have surgeries and that he'll come back and find a way to just get back to that level that he can play and, and he won't sleep at night or won't stop until he does, until he gets there. So, but I will say it's definitely starts to get harder. Now I want to talk about Canada this year winning both the Davis Cup and the ATP and some of the people I've talked to in preparing for this interview say a lot of it started when you first came on the scene with your attitude and your approach to life, which I think is just highly complimentary about who you are. But it must have been something special to accomplish something that no country's ever accomplished, but even just the Davis Cup and attaching Canada's name to it. Yeah, it's the highlight of my career. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, Davis Cup is obviously one of you know, the biggest sporting events in, in the world. So that, that goes without saying. But for me personally, I just I feel like I've invested so much effort, like time and passion and dedication. And um, and I love playing for my country and I love playing for my teammates. And, you know, it, it's, it's an environment that we don't get to to 
be a part of uh, too often as, as tennis players, naturally being an individual sport. And, and I'd say, you know, the last 10 years, we've slowly been inching our way towards the top Davis Cup. You know, first we qualified for the World Group, which was the first time in, I don't know, a decade. And then that we went around and suddenly 2013, we're in the semis. And then Dennis and Felix make their appearance on, on the scene and, and they're incredibly, you know, incredible talents. And suddenly we have all this depth and we're getting closer and closer. And in 2019, we make the final. And for me personally, the last four or five years, I was just like, I like really wanted to win Davis Cup title for Canada. And it would, would be an incredible career accomplishment to be able to do so. And which made the 2019, you know, really, really hurt, even though we made the finals um, for the first time ever. Uh, it hurt a lot because I, was, I don't have that many years left, you know, and for us to actually be able to do it was as much of an ex- exhilarating. I mean, I was ecstatic incredible day week you know year whatever as much that as it was a a huge relief for me with every year i just felt more and more pressure as well which actually made me play better and better ironically but and i think that's just the power of having a, a vision and a dream and believing that you can do it i guess is what makes you kind of play better in those situations do you feel let down afterwards i mean you invest so much of your life you get to play with teammates you get to play with the maple leaf stitched on your heart you win at the end of it is it like okay i got to the summit now what's next or can you just can you keep that memory alive in terms of who you are and where you're going to go in the future i think you can just feed off it if anything i think it's just a boost a morale boost confidence boost um, gives you a little bit of that looseness and relaxation for the next events and and um yeah we actually have a group chat with with obviously the whole team and then what kind of summed it up was that that one of the players was like, well, let's just go second year, let's defend our title, and we all started getting fired up about going back to defend our title, which is cool, right? Which I think wouldn't have to necessarily have been communicated, but I think we're just like we, you know, we want to keep going, we want to keep doing it, and um, I think that's just also the nature of being quite driven and and wanting to achieve success, and um, hopefully we'll we'll be able to. To do it again. I interviewed Scotty Morrison, who wrote the book about 1972, the Team Canada Summit. And one of the things he says is so amazing is these players get together 50 years later. Within seconds, they're back on the ice. And they talk about the locker room. And, and now they get together with the Russians who they had to hate and their best friends. And that's something special that they've been gifted, you've been gifted. So uh, well done. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. If you think Vashek Pospisil is a powerhouse in tennis, wait to hear what he's doing as both an activist and an investor. What a volley that is under all sorts of pressure. Ice cool, the Canadian. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. All right. Yo, you ever think of giving up tennis altogether because your doubles game is uh it is just terrible as your singles only difference is you're pulling partner down with you as well. You're terrible, bro. Just please do quit. Thomas, my man. Thinking about it. I had thought about it. No, I'm just kidding. I never do that. My guest today is Vashek Pospisil. He is a world champion tennis player. He has such incredible insights into what matters and that's beyond the court of tennis. So I just want to talk briefly about Djokovic is a name that people know quite well and you two have teamed up to kind of Defend the underdogs in tennis. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing and why you feel this association matters. To summarize, yeah, no, Novak uh, Djokovic and I, we, we started the first player association. And the whole purpose or why it even happened in the first place really is is the fact that, you know, when you look at the sport of tennis, you know, it being a multi-billion dollar industry globally, 
you know, third most watched sport in the world. Um, just such a huge business. And then you only have the top hundred athletes of that sport able to make a living. It's mind blowing. And it, it, you know, there are a lot of red flags and alarm bells that are going off there. And, and a lot of things that, you know, information that we know that is the reason for that. And ultimately, it was just something that both of us were really passionate about changing. And a few years ago, when I when I had first approached, you know, Norton Rose um, about the whole concept, um, it was actually when I had my back surgery. And as someone that's kind of gone through everything, these adversities to get to where you are in your life and your sport. And then when you're finally there, and you see what's happening, and and you see all these players that are ranked, you know, 100 to 400, 500, whatever it is that are not able to make any money. And you know that there's so much money and you know where it's all going. And it really just really bothered me. That's how Novak and I really, I think, just kind of uh, bonded. I had so much time on my hands at the time. And, you know, what better use of my time <laughs> right now than to, than to try to actually change the sport and change it for the better. And that's what we're working on right now every day. And I really believe that, that it'll be successful. And I really believe that it will change the sport forever for the better. And um, I think tennis needs it. I think what you're doing is fantastic. And it's a mark of the times where we've got to level the playing field. And we got to, it's almost a transfer of wealth that we need to see across society. And certainly it's evident in your game. The other thing is no one's, no one's looking out for these players. So that's the saddest part is that like as a professional player, you're your own CEO and you have to figure it out. And if you get injured, there's nobody there for you. Of course, you have your family and you have this, but like you don't make any money. If you're injured for a year, you're going to be scrambling trying to figure out how to, to make ends meet. And you've been playing tennis your whole life. And that's the only way that you're able to even make money. So then, you know, you have, I've known so many players that, that are amazing players that get injured and they're, let's say they're ranked 150 in the world or uh, one of my best friends actually, you know, this, this happened to, and, and then he's on the, and he's coaching, you know, and it's just, it's just sad because there's such a huge business and we don't even have the basic, like a player advocacy group that will just try to, you know, whether it's helping with travel, where it's helping with certain expenses or, or services or, or something. And, and, you know, all these other major sports have that in abundance and tennis doesn't. And, and it's, it's, um, something that that needs to change. I want to now move to your investing acumen. And I understand that you really have to thank your cousin in a $10 gift card for setting you off. And <laughs> so what's, what's that story all about? Yeah, that was my very first memory of anything, you know, of money or debt or <laughs> credit, I should say. And so that was, uh, yeah, I was very young, very young kid. My cousin gave me a card to basically use as, um, as credit at the uh, convenience store. So, so I first got involved in, in investing or interested in it again when I had my back surgery. I was actually fortunate enough to be housing with one of my close um, friends now and former manager, Andre Kapinski in Toronto. And yeah, and he just kind of brought me into his world a little bit and I got so fascinated by it and, and um, you know, made a couple of first, you know, initial investments with him that he kind of showed me or introduced me to. And I just, it just became a huge passion since then. It's very fun. It's a very fun journey and it's challenging and it's exciting and so many different, different uh, opportunities out there. And, and um, it's one of the things I, I really enjoy doing outside of tennis. What I'm interested in is that celebrities now have moved from kind of singing for their supper, you know, being paid to endorse a brand to actually owning the brand. Is that in your future that you're going to parlay not only the spotlight that's on you, but your investment acumen and your personality and really become the lead singer for a company? In some ways, I already have with the mushroom company that I co-founded um, with uh, a good friend of mine. So yeah, I think that that's, you know, I think that's really what my, I'd like my future to look like is being, you know, owner or, or, or co-owners of a of, of company and really being able to use my 
network and platform and, and whatever it is to, to be able to grow a company and bring something, you know, solve, whether it's solve, it's well to solve a problem or bring a product to, to people that need it or want it. And yeah, and just have it be a win-win situation for everyone. And, uh, and again, I just love building things and working on things and seeing something where I put my mind and energy towards uh, grow into, into something and have there be progress. There's nothing more satisfying than seeing you know progress um, in any any part of your life. So Michael Downey, somebody I've known for probably twice as long as you've been on this planet, he talks about you with with such pride, and he says, you know, one of the things I'm so impressed about is his ability to network. And not network just in terms of self-serving, but network to learn, to be around different people, to try to solve problems in a different way. Is that a fair statement about who you are? Absolutely. But I, I, I wouldn't want that to be misunderstood because I, I love people. Like I love being around people. I love meeting good people. It just, you know, happens that, that I've, you know, become really great friends with several um, very intelligent, successful people in the world that I've been able to learn from as well, which is, I think, ultimately, you know, in some ways, what, you know, maybe draws me to them or them to me is that I'm genuinely curious to learn and to like understand, you know, how they've done what they've done. And, you know, I think when you when you just go in with that approach, you're, you know, you're like a sponge, and you just you can learn so much. And I think it kind of rubs off on them as well. And they see that you're just genuinely interested in, in what they're doing. I think if you're going into I don't I don't like the term networking, because I feel like in some ways, that kind of just like implies that you're trying to like, get something out of somebody. And if you ever approach a situation with like that in mind, I, I don't even think, you know, I think that'll just rub people the wrong way. And 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 they can kind of read through that or see through it. For me, it's more just like, you know what, I like to go to events because I just like, well, I'll never know who I'm going to meet that's going to become a friend of mine. And then just kind of let it let whatever things happen naturally from there. And I've been very fortunate, you know, over the years, I've, I've met some amazing people that have become mentors and, and true friends. And and I made, you know, a friend that I consider one of my best friends who I met on Necker Island. Uh, who's that? Sorry. Uh, it's it's Bill Perkins. Uh, yeah. Amazing human being, like just so generous with everybody around him, anybody that knows him. Like I haven't heard anyone ever say a bad word. About, you know, it's just those are the kind of people you want around in your life. And he also happens to be one of the smartest people I've ever met. So it's, you know, so it's like, hey, like, give me some advice on on this. Like, what do you think? And And he'll break it down and he'll give me the smartest answer I would ever hear on that topic. As I close out this interview, I mean, we've talked about your social activism. We've talked about your investment acumen. We've talked about your tennis. We didn't get to the fact I hear you're a mean acoustic guitarist and vocalist. (laughs) (laughs) What's next for you? What are you going to serve up next? What are we out as I follow your career and your life over the next decade? What what are we going to see? Oh, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? But yeah, I actually used to play or I say used to unfortunately used to and it's because I've gotten so busy the last couple of years. I know it's not a not a good excuse. But I used to travel with a guitar and play every day and when because when I had time off because I I really try to make the most out of my time off and I like productivity I like being proactive I like doing things I don't like to just sit and waste time so when I had more time on my hands I didn't have you know let's say a startup or player association or whatever it is I was writing music and and became really passionate about that and so I got to get back into that but one of the next things you might see is, is actually uh, something I'm, I'm planning now and it might be interesting and might have to keep slightly confidential but i can give you the high level kind of outcome what that would look like as as a pretty in-depth look into into um 
into my life and the tennis life and yeah it might be interesting for some people i hope i hope it is interesting but that will, might be the next the next project that will be the outcome but uh we'll see Pashak, i always end my episodes with my three takeaways and the first one is i love how much you love your dad and i think it's just so wonderful how you talked about the sacrifices i know this is both your mom and your dad but you know your dad going out with you and going to tournaments and never putting the pressure on you that he could have and just letting you become this gifted athlete and this incredible human being you are. So that's the first thing I, I really want to take away. The second thing is that I talked about circumstances at the beginning and you've just nailed it for me that you've approached every circumstance and sometimes they're horrific, back injury or mononucleosis or when you weren't playing well and you've used each time to your advantage, whether it was studying Buddhism investing or being productive with your time circumstances to you are always opportunities and I think that's an incredible lesson in life for people and the third one is just you know I, I pushed at the beginning saying you know you were really onto that one lane do you regret it and what I realized after talking to you is that you're not on one lane you're this 10 lane highway and each time that you jump from one topic to another your your eyes are still shining you're excited you're energetic and i have to believe your biggest barrier to life is the fact there's only 24 hours in a day for you <laughs> yeah well, listen i really appreciate you joining me in uh, chatter that matters and uh, enjoy your time in nectar island and uh, and i'm sure you're going to run into richard branson who's someone I, I just admire as one of the great human beings as well tony thank you so much for having me on the show it was, uh, it was really great i really enjoyed it Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. But I'll follow you first wherever you go. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Super nervous, but... <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, so, so that, that's, that's, that's my song.